Well, hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Fearless Questions podcast, where we follow our questions to freedom. I'm your host, Jeff Blackburn, and today I'm so happy to introduce you to a little-known surfer living in Los Angeles, who also just happens to be a New York, New York Times bestselling author and a man resolved to being a purveyor of good news in the world. Uh, we're welcoming in Rob Bell. Rob, how are you doing Great. today? Great to be with you. I'm doing very well. That's a good intro. Is I it? I like that. Okay. Very, that's one of the better ones ever. I like that. <laughs> okay. Well, even better than that, a random fact, and this is just for any of my listeners who happen to be you know, local here in Indianapolis where I'm at, Rob is someone who for many years of his life, I believe, has carried a Larry Bird trading card with him. Is that true? That is absolutely true. I have two authentic jerseys in my back house. I have a that card almost wore out, so I framed it, and it's in... Uh, it's in my house in a very prominent place. There you go. Well, look. <laughs> I'm so bird. Oh, man. <laughs> well, we're all sad the Pacers are done this year, but it's good for people Ooh. to know you have a little Hoosier street cred, which is critical to, <laughs> well, not many, but I still like that about you. So we thought we'd throw it in. So, um, well, look, Rob, thanks for making time for us today. Um, you guys, Rob's written a slew of books. He's created short films spoken around the world, and even does some stand-up routines with Pete Holmes out in L.A. And as a former pastor, you've probably written and presented enough messages to create a 100 more books than you've already written. But um, more recently, Rob, in just a couple weeks or so, you've got a brand new book coming out called What is the Bible, which uh, will no doubt set off many a blog post from people who consider themselves God's theology police. But you have a (laughs) wonderfully loaded subtitle for the book. Can you share that with us? How an ancient library of poems, letters, and stories can transform the way you think and feel about everything. About everything. <laughs> I love it. I totally love it. Well, look, um, I think the release date's in a couple weeks, maybe May 16th, I think. Yes. And yes. so if people go to robbell.com or, or any of the normal book sites, I think, are you giving some free bonus stuff away with that as well, I'm usually? Just, I'm stuff on, the con- on the, my website at robbell.com that's not in the book. Okay. The book was really, really long, and now it's really long. Uh. (laughs) Well, it's not that bad, actually. I mean, I've heard you say that, but then I did get a chance to read the book. And let me just say at the outset, you know, everyone who's interested in the Bible or learning what God is really like should check this out. And and I'm not just saying that. I really hope that people read the book because for some, this is going to sound like good news. For others, it might sort of shake up some of the certainty with which they've been operating because uh, it can feel a little scary to engage perspectives that are a little different than the religious tradition you've grown up in. And for those folks, I'd just say read it. And if you disagree, great. But Rob's done some great thinking here that that will be valuable for you and your understanding of Scripture wherever you end up landing. Um, so, Rob, as we just sort of jump in here, um, if you don't mind, we'll just jump into the book to, to start. Um, you sort right. of broke your you broke it down in sort of four parts. Um, there's something more going on here. Then you move to the nature of that something, where that something takes us, and then you kind of wrap up addressing questions that in- inevitably come up in the Bible. Um, and I do want people to know at the outset, these aren't just questions that some atheist is asking. These are questions who people believe the Bible is God's Word have. Um, and so it's helpful. Um, and so out of the gate, it's probably helpful for us to just let you set the stage for sort of why you wrote this book, you know, why you think it's important. And while this strikes me as sort of almost a culmination type work of your life so far chasing after God, you uh, early in the book, you mentioned a guy called Richard coming up to talk to you after <laughs> yeah. one of your first sermons and yeah. maybe just start there with us. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I discovered the sermon as this beautiful, poetic, dangerous, subversive art form. And I was probably I was 21. And I was like, I discovered the sermon as this beautiful art form that had been hijacked that many people in our culture, when you say the word sermon, they immediately think what's for lunch. You know what I mean? Boring yeah. yeah. propaganda, just telling people the same cliches over and over again, hoping that something will happen. Um, but I, I'd been in a band, the band broke up, and I had volunteered to give a sermon, and I was like, oh, my word, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to reclaim this art form. And in the tradition I came from, a, a sermon was something you gave from the Bible. So I, so I went to seminary and studied form and textual criticism and Greek and Hebrew and all that. Um, and then I got a job at a church, like you do, mm-hmm. and I started giving sermons. But I realized, oh, wait. This book, these books, because it's a library of books, are amazing, and people aren't talking about it. They're they're just repeating stuff they've heard. But if you actually read this book, it takes you in all these different places. And then a guy came up to me, uh, which I talk about in the book after one of my first sermons, and he just said, "You've missed the whole. You've missed it." And I had just given some sermon on something Jesus said, and he said, "My name is Richard. I'm Jewish." And you realize that when Jesus holds up a cup at the Last Supper, there would have been four cups. It was a Passover Seder. And you understand what the what the main questions were at a Passover Seder. And you realize that was a commentary on Exodus, which is also a commentary on the Babylonian exile. And he just starts going. <laughs> uh, and it was like, wait, what? And uh, Now, were you a little so, defensive out of the gate there? Or were you at a place uh, in your life where you were already pretty open to hearing? Like lots of people, you sense there's there must be something more going on this book shouldn't be frustrating. Mm-hmm. It should be liberating and challenging. And then I started, uh, and then from there it was like down the rabbit hole we went. So when in the book of Acts there are tongues of fire and the apostles see these tongues of fire, that's a reference to Sinai. That's a reference to what happens in Exodus chapter 20 and 21. So like it just never stopped. All of this, all these passages are talking to each other and when Noah builds an ark and a flood, lots of cultures had flood stories. Flood stories weren't rare. Mm-hmm. Um, but in all the ancient flood stories, like I talk about in the book, in the ancient flood stories, at the end, the gods destroy everybody because people are bad and need to be rid from the planet. So the idea that the Noah flood story ends with this particular god saying, I'm not going to do that again, was actually a revolutionary step forward. And when I began to see that the Bible reflected this evolving human consciousness and awareness. Oh, then a bunch of things that were problems are no longer problems because you're reading it as a book that was written by real people in real places and real times. And then whatever divine that you discover in it, you got there honestly. Hmm. And then it was just like, then it's just been 25 years of that. And I just keep getting more interested and I find it more convicting and more timely uh, than ever. Hmm. Well, and, you know, one of the phrases I hear you say all the time is, and that's, we're sort of jumping ahead a little bit because you get to questions later about inerrancy and all those types of things, but you always use this phrase about the Bible where you say it's better than that. And oh, um, yeah. and I love that. It's one of my favorite things. It's like, that actually was the first phrase that I'd heard you say that I was like, wait a second, what does that mean? Because I like what yeah. that sounds like, but that's, yeah. a, that's a great question. Um, well, look, you hit on so many different stories that are fascinating in the book, but 
you know, when the first chapter is entitled Moses and his moisture, you know, you, yes. know, you know, things are about to get real, but, uh, <laughs> you, you, you know, and I'll let people read it unless, you know, for that part of it, because that's just an hilarious way to start. Um, and it'll make some people yeah, uncomfortable, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I wanted, to, I wanted to, because I wanted people to see, like, there's a translation of the Bible called the NIV. I think it should probably be translated neutered international version. <laughs> because there's so much going on in the in the original languages, so much humor, so much innuendo, mm -hmm. so much graphics, sexual imagery, so much that you miss. Um, I mean, you think about the minor prophets or you think about Jeremiah and Isaiah. I mean, they're the original rage against the machine. Um, I mean, you think about Bernie Sanders filling arenas to talk to young people about the widening gap between rich and poor. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a direct line from him to the to the prophets, to the Jewish prophets who said, you have a few people with all the wealth and the masses are going hungry. It's just so interesting to me how many ideas in our modern culture people find fascinating. And those ideas in many cases started in the Bible. Mm, mm. Uh, and when people are like, well, how do you make it relevant? Uh, you don't. You read it and discover these people were talking about everything we're talking about now. They're thousands of years ahead of what we're talking about now. Hmm. But it's all the same issues. Technology, power, sexuality. How do you forgive somebody who's wronged you? Um, what happens if you've been on the receiving end of horrific violence? Hmm. Um, I mean, all of this. And, I, and that's, what's, that's what drives me with this book is I want people to see you're not alone. That human beings have been wrestling with these kinds of questions for literally thousands of years. Hmm. Well, Rob, I'm a I'm a former professional relig religious person, and uh, having spent a decent amount of time guarding my quote hermeneutics and trying to keep pure exegesis, um, you know, your work is sort of surprising to me on two fronts. And number one is sort of how have I missed so many crazy stories written so plainly in the text? Because you were protecting your hermeneutic. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. I mean, I think I've gotten there. But the, the second part of that was, why does discovering these stories seem so unsettling for so many folks operating inside of religious institutions? I mean, it, like you said, it's right, it is right there in front of you. But, you know, it seems unsettling when you, when you deal with some of what the Bible actually says. Well, what's interesting, a couple of thoughts. That's a great question. A couple of thoughts. One thought would be, in my experience— People who have been around this book their whole lives, when they hear these passages talked about like this, generally they're so grateful because they're like, I always knew there was something more going on. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. people have endlessly sat through sermons where the, where the preacher is doing all these calisthenics. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like a giant game of Twister trying to tell you why God is really like that or trying to explain away. And you're like, nah. It's too, you're, you're working too hard. You know what I mean? It's yeah. too sweaty. Um, so in my experience, people people just get lit up. There's and and I this I'm now 25 years into this of people coming up afterwards and saying, like literally angry, like why didn't somebody tell me this earlier? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Why didn't somebody tell me that the word for hell occurs roughly 12 or 13 times in the entire Bible, pretty much only on the lips of Jesus? And the word is Gehenna, and it's referring 
to an actual place in the city of Jerusalem. That would have been nice to know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or yeah. an example would be the Hebrews had no articulate vision of the afterlife. The entire Old Testament, you have Sheol, you have the pit, you have Hades, but you don't really have, they don't really care that much. If you're like actually read through the texts, uh, you know what I mean? Mm. Like how many people would find that? Or take the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Ezekiel. Ezekiel of all people says Sodom will be restored. Sodom will be restored. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that have been nice to know? Um, that anything anybody ever says about Sodom and Gomorrah, it's important to know that the prophets were like, oh yeah, even that peace will be made there. That'll all be restored and reconciled. So uh, it's a great question. The first thing I just noticed again and again is people are thrilled, they're relieved, they're energized when they hear this. And then the second thing is oftentimes what people say is their faith and their belief in the Bible is actually a tribal code that is enmeshed with economics, capitalism, politics, the approval of certain authority figures. And they would say to you, well, I'm just telling you what the Bible says, but they're actually giving you 21st century capitalism hmm. run through a Darwinian economics, survival of the fittest, you know what I mean? <laughs> Pick up the run through, if I were to entertain that idea, that would make Thanksgiving dinner very awkward, and I'm about to inherit the family business, so I don't want to jeopardize any of that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, there's a thousand other, and then sometimes it's just blatant Americanism. Hmm. Um, we have lots of weapons, and we go to war when we need to, and don't you dare challenge that. Yeah, so, and you did mention that in the, in the book, too, about the nature. I mean, that's a pretty big thing that I think some people have gotten on board with, but the fact that you know, as Americans, it's kind of one of the superpowers in the world. It's We have to recognize the perspective we're living in versus the perspective yeah. of the authors, right? Yeah, and that, like, uh, the Bible is written by a minority group of people who have been conquered by one military superpower after another. The Egyptians, the Seleucids, the Persians, the Babylonians. By Jesus' time, it's the Romans. So they have a particular viewpoint about coercive military power, and it's not favorable. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. They have opinions about drones and F-14s. Uh, <laughs> and, and you can also think about it, they had been conquered by people who, dis who crushed them in the name of their gods, the Babylonian gods, the Egyptian gods. So when these people then edit together a library of books that tell violent stories about people conquering in the name of their gods, it's probably not because they're approving of that. Mm. You know what I mean? They're, they're putting these stories together to say, look at how evil and wretched and antichrist this is. And I think a lot of Americans, like you said, when, when they hear this, it's like shocking for some, and then all of a sudden a bunch of passages begin to make sense. Oh, got it. That's just what I've seen happen. Well, and I, you know, you're the subject. You even you first of all, that was a cannonball of a podcast introduction to the deep end of the pool because things are going everywhere here. You've hit end times, war, money, finance, all the stuff. <laughs> um, but just to that point, um, you know, when you talked about 
people saying, well, the Bible clearly says this. And you talk about this, you know, violence in a number of places in the, in the book and this idea that, okay, maybe the readers weren't really saying, the authors weren't really saying it was God. I mean, I'm just saying that was shocking to me only because I've done a bit of study and I had like the opportunity to sit in the Sheldonian theater at Oxford and listen to three guys debate the different viewpoints of how God could, you know, command genocide, this and that. And then, and there are com- three different people and it's completely unsatisfying the answers and every one of it Thank seems you. like a reach. And Thank I'm just, you. and you're just so sitting more, there going like, what? Ready. <laughs> um, but then, you know, your story, it's like, I feel like the, the theological argument police would come in. Um, and this kind of goes in another direction already, but this idea of like, um, and hopefully this is an okay place to go, but like I've seen a number of the interviews you've given over the years. And one of the things that's been the most fascinating to me has been the nature of people always trying to frame these either or questions to you in such a way that, and hopefully we've learned this from politics, that he who frames the question wins the argument usually. And it's like they give you these black or white questions that I'm just like, what's Rob going to do with this? And you, and that's sort of what, and I'm just wondering, what do you do with that over the years? Do you just give up trying to, because this book to me seems like sort of your offering back to the world saying, you know, those black and white questions you're asking me that I can't even Thank agree on the framework. Yeah. Read this. This is, um, this is sort of the groundwork from where my questions are coming from. Is that fair? Yes, exactly. And and the modern world worships at the altar of binaries. Is it this or is it this? Which one is it? A or B? And which is interesting because a binary, ones and zeros, that is how you put songs on an iPad. So a binary at some level works. Is it this or is it this? But spiritual maturity is about moving to a non-dual awareness where you realize that two things may be true at the same time. So uh, there is the known and the unknown. There is belief and there is doubt. And generally, they exist side by side. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're, they're all anger and joy. Um, think about however your day has gone or my day has gone. We've got all signs or your listeners to your podcast. On any given moment, you've got who knows how many things going on inside of you. So if I were to say to you, well, are you happy or are you sad? You'd be, well, I'm sad because of this. My friend's going through cancer. I'm happy because my kid's going to come home from school and hug me. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, so the problem with a lot of these questions is they're built on a number of as- assumptions that simply aren't reflective of how life really is. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't sound bite as well, um, but you have to just hold your ground. Because we're talking about the infinite, hmm. and that won't fit in standard categories. If you were, if it did fit in standard categories, you wouldn't be talking about the infinite. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what I'm trying to do in this book, I think that both sides of most debates, especially when it comes to the Bible, aren't reading the Bible well. You have the one side that says it literally happened exactly like the story says, and the other side says. You don't think I'm going to believe that nonsense. There's no way that happened. And both sides are fundamentalist. You know what I mean? The mm-hmm. one is fundamentalist, yes. The one is fundamentalist, no. Both have used their positions to conveniently ignore the power and depth and passion of the story, which is why it survived for thousands of years. And like you take the early church fathers, 
if they read a passage of scripture and it didn't make sense literally, then they just they just assumed it was allegory. Hmm. Done. It's, it's probably it's, it's an let's read it as an allegory. So even this idea, I mean, inerrancy, that word was invented, what was it, 1913? Even the idea of this category of absolutes or without error, these are all brand new ideas in the history of reading the Bible. And many people, these are the only lens they've ever been handed. So what I'm simply doing with this book is saying, you can read this as people have read it for literally thousands of years, and you'll just find yourself so caught up in something, the last thing you'll be doing is trying to argue about it or prove something about it, because it will be this source of life and vitality, and it'll ground you and center, but in you and but in some very new ways that are that actually work. Hmm. <laughs> actually, great. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just I'm interested by one of the thing that's so interesting about this line of discussion is as I look back over my own journey and the different, you know, places I've been at, um, there is like, we kind of alluded to earlier, there's this real defensiveness because the version of reading scripture that you're talking about, um, sort of takes this, the shackles of, as if the Bible is so prescriptive always that the, oh, right. And, right. um, you know, you, you put a line in the book somewhere. I, I think it was something to the effect of the, the Torah like started the discussion and we treat the Bible like it ends it or something like that. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. For a lot of people, the spiritual authority came from ending the discussion. Here's how to think about this. By the way, you would find this fascinating. A beloved friend of mine, um, Rabbi Joel lives near me here in Los Angeles and he was just over Sunday and we always have these great discussions, but we were talking the other day and Rabbi Joel, somehow we got on, kids and like i was um, saying to him so in your synagogue how like is there some list of things you're trying to get people to know you know what i mean like is mm -hmm. there nine is there, is there a list and he's like no he's like you know i was like you know what i mean like what are your five i mean don't you have some body of knowledge that you're supposed to values beliefs what doctors he's like no the only thing that's important is that we teach people in our synagogue how to ask questions. Mm, wow. <laughs> that's the only question. And he said, we actually have classes to teach people how to ask questions. Wow. So he said, when it comes to kids, and, and he said, and so we were talking about in Exodus, the Passover Seder, um, the, the, the lines in Exodus are when your child asks you, what does it mean that we observe this uh, meal in, in regards to the liberation from Egypt, you it begins with the assumption that your kid is asking you questions about what this means. Mm -hmm. Why do we do this? What does this mean? And that you would have had experiences that you would be witnessing to. I was a slave and then I was liberated. So you would never, within the Torah itself, you would never just randomly say these nine things are true. I just trust me, they're true. They're the absolutes. You would only witness to what you'd actually tasted. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you think about how many people had all this stuff stuffed down their throats. And if you were just to pause and say, how has that made your life better? They would look at you like, 
I don't understand. Why are you asking that? Because, <laughs> but he was literally like, the only thing is making sure that people know how to ask questions. <laughs> well, and it, it seems like there's much more of an assumption built in there that your faith should be connected to your everyday life, right? That your everyday uh, experience of everyday life. Sure. How and, do you live? Yep. Yeah, and so many people, um, you know, this isn't, it's almost like the idea of talking about your life experience is some sort of liberal, non-intellectual thing that's too, too reckless to deal with, you know, and I keep feeling like if it doesn't make sense to your experience, then what's the point? Um, which I suppose the answer to that is always, well, it's all about the either your in or out conversation. That's why it probably goes that direction so quickly. But, um, well, but I think you're completely correct. If you read the Gospels, what Jesus understood as a good Jewish rabbi, and the, the thing he's interested in is your taste of this. You're seeing it. You're experiencing it. This is never an intellectual exercise or getting the thoughts right. It's always you're thirsty and you need water. A friend of mine has this great analogy. He said, there are people who are thirsty and they need water. And then there are wine connoisseurs <laughs> who spend their energies debating and yeah. discussing the various variations of wine. And he says, Jesus does not come for the wine connoisseurs who are discussing which kinds of wine they like. He comes for the thirsty who need water. And that's always, um, that has so shaped me in understanding this. Um, that the sort of lofty intellectual who's smarter than who, who can quote Bible verses, mm. not interesting. It's just not interesting. Hmm. Wow. Well, I'm setting aside a couple pages of notes here about the book because we've gone so I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm interested in this conversation. Yeah. I think that um, I'm going to set aside some of the book stuff right now for, because if I do want people to get into it because you go through different stories in the throughout scripture and you seem to lay down this other lens and you referenced it earlier, like real people, real places and real time and, and kind of starting there. Um, let me ask you a couple, a couple of questions. Like let's assume people are reading it. They're like, wow, this lens is, is really, um, really helpful, Rob. But, um, you know, let's say that, um, well, let me say, this is a weird question, but it, it's taken me to this place about, so, we're talking about people trying to get in, you know, get all the facts, right. Basically all the kind of Protestant confirmation class type things. Like, did you get it all? And it kind of took me back since we're talking about the Bible and all this too, is that, you know, when Martin Luther and the reformation stuff happened and, you know, regardless of the indulgences and different abuses, there was, it seemed like there was a pushback from the Catholic church that putting the Bible into the hands of everyday folks who were uneducated and, you know, didn't have an ability to understand the depth and nuance of the history and languages and the, meanings of the stories could actually be dangerous. And that used to seem silly to me when I was in a tradition that believed scripture was the only way to hear from God, a perfect, you know, we, Jody and I grew up in the God, the father, son, and Holy Bible kind of Trinity world. Oh yeah. But, you know, actually there seems almost to be some legitimacy to that concern back then. And I'm, can I safe throwing that question away at this point or, you know, cause I'm listening to you and I read your book and it's like, wow, some of your understanding of language and everything is so helpful to be able to see how this lens makes sense of stuff. Um, it's kind of a big question, but I wonder if you might have any thoughts on that. Yeah. Uh, I have a question about, I have a thought about literacy and a thought about power. First off, you have a thousand other factors 
at that time. So, in the, so at the time of the Reformation, lots of people were illiterate. Right. So you needed stained glass windows that showed you Jesus leaving a bunch of sheep and going out and getting the one that had wandered away. So stained glass windows were sort of the texts. And what's interesting about those stained glass windows is they generally were action scenes. You know what I mean? Okay. They were depicting events from the Jesus stories. And so the fundamental way people heard a lot of these stories was you'd look at a stained glass, you'd hear the story, and, and obviously the story's about action, because in this story, a son is coming home, and he's beaten up, and he's a mess, and the father's welcoming him. And in this, in this you know, picture, this is happening. And with, with the invention of the printing press and with increasing literacy rates, suddenly you had people reading – and this, of course, shaped brain development because now I'm seeing little etchings in columns. And at that time as well, there were two columns on the page. So you started having the Bible written down, and there were two columns of text. So then the church building started being organized with two straight rows of seats side by side. Okay. Are you with me on this? Yeah. They literally the architecture then. And then you had, like with Martin Luther, then gradually the church service came to be modeled after the university classroom. So you had somebody up front giving a lecture mm. as opposed to a Jewish setting where this text is in the middle of the room and you dance the text through the place. It's much more of a circle where you're all weighing in. Now we have an expert professor who tells us what it means. Mm. So then, of course, you have prominence of the Book of Romans, which is much more of an abstract understanding. It's almost like a shift from Jesus to Paul. Um, I'm throwing a lot at you, but but... You had a lot going on then. And then secondly, if only a few people can read it, and if those people are insisting on original sin, and you can convince everybody that you are a poor, wretched, depraved sinner unless you do these things that we're telling you this book that you can't read says you need to do, man, do you have a lot of power in that world. Mm -hmm. And opening this book up to everybody and the invention of the printing press meaning that more and more people can read it for themselves, that means they may begin to ask questions and they may rebel against the mothership. They may go their own way. They may no longer submit to your authority, which is exactly what happened. Now, the reason why I think it's interesting is nowadays, any one of your listeners can go to uh, Biblios, B-I-B-L-I-O-S dot com. They can look up a passage from the Bible and they can see what the actual original words are. Mm-hmm. They could see what tense you you can. I mean, in the back of my new book, I list all sorts of books that are totally accessible um, for anybody that can get you into this stream of reading the Bible really quickly. Mm-hmm. And I have seen so many. I have seen plumbers and electricians and moms and professors and athletes start reading the Bible in a new way and reading books that sort of illuminate these real people in real places at real times. And uh, it's just, then you're off to the races. Now it's, now it's quite interesting. So uh, that's what's happening now. Hmm. And so anytime someone's like, well, it's nice, I don't know Greek. Don't worry, my friend. Um, we, can, we can hack that. <laughs> we can figure that one out. <laughs> so maybe, so if it was about power in the beginning, maybe there was some time in the middle there where there could have been some residual, you know, maybe lack of clarity in certain areas. I guess what I was alluding to in some ways were the abuse, the ability of people to 
continue to abuse power because of people's lack of access to the truth. So the more, so the more truth we have, then the the less that's going to be an issue. I hear you saying. Absolutely. And you think about it for some people, the goal is to get it right to arrive. Mm -hmm. So we need to make sure that we've, we've, you know, we get it. But at that point, how boring would that be? I mean, the, the, well, the answer to that is clear if you sit down in many churches on a Sunday these so, days. I think it's just important to understand that, like, with Jesus, um, and if there's one thing I would leave your listeners with, Jesus has asked lots and lots and lots and lots of questions in the Gospels. He answers, like, one or two of them, maybe. Hmm. Otherwise, he responds, how do you read it? Um, how do you interpret it? What do you think about it? Um, who do you think I am? He, as a good rabbi, he responds to questions 90 whatever percent of the time with questions. Hmm. So the very nature of faith is we're exploring and we're dancing. And like you and I in this conversation, we're going back and forth. Someone's saying one thing. Oh, what an interesting thing. I had thought about that. What, what about this? Oh, hmm. that's, it's, it's a a dialogue and a dance. And for so many people, this thing became the goal is to get it right. Who's got it right? Mm-hmm. Who doesn't have it right? Who should I listen to to make sure I get it right? And no wonder everybody's bored out of their minds. Right. And you, and you well, talked about dancing with the text in your book, which I, yes. I found very, very helpful. Um, but let me, let me ask you about something here because um, I'll ask, I'll share kind of, I don't know if it's a dangerous question. It's probably not, but I think it's one that, people beyond me have probably had in their journey. And it's just this idea that sometimes with the Bible and it, maybe it's because it's been, it has been stagnant for me sometimes, but there's points in my journey where it, it, you just kind of feel over it. It's not, you're dismissing it as God's word, but it just, you're almost unable to read it for a minute. And the reason I'm asking that is when you say that question, you know, what is, who does, who do you say God is? Like, who do you think he is? Like, that question for many people takes them straight to a pastor. Like they feel like they need, it's sort of like the, the old priest or something where I can't talk to God. So it has to be from him. I think that's sort of the assumed posture of many people. And so, you know, and sometimes I feel over the Bible and I just, I don't know. I wonder if there's somewhere in the journey that I wonder what you might say to kind of that dynamic. Sometimes. Yeah. Obviously sometimes you need to just put the Bible down. Don't read it. And I think a lot of people in modern in in modern American culture who grew up around the Bible, you know what? You just might need to put it down for a long time. Hmm. I told it, it. It becomes too toxic. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, it becomes just too. So I totally get that. And there have been periods where I was like, "Yeah, I'm reading other things. I'm not that interested right now." That's just totally normal. Um, and. Atheism, doubt, insecurity, I'm not uh, not knowing if you can know anything. These are all natural human experiences. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If you've lost somebody you love to cancer, if you've been in a third world setting where, where thousands of people don't have enough food to eat, and you have found yourself thinking there's no way there's somebody actually running the universe, that is a very normal, healthy thought. And... So it's important to understand that in the Bible, half the Psalms are laments, which are basically, where are you? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross is basically the day that God becomes an atheist. <laughs> so um, <laughs> Here you go. 
<laughs> these ideas that somehow the Bible is about belief and it's against atheism, then how come so many people in this book are wrestling with the very idea that there's some sort of benign good force? Um, they're doing that because this is what we've been wrestling with for thousands of years. So um, a, a lot of these things that people thought weren't allowed, Jesus comes in his full humanity to let us be fully, to teach us to be fully human. And that's rage and anger and loss. It all belongs. And actually, the problem in a lot of religious settings is there are certain things you can't say, questions you can't ask. Right. So they go underground. They all get pushed down. And then no wonder that the preacher is an alcoholic and the people in the front row are at each other's throats. You know what I mean? Right. They're denying their own truth. Uh, and that's when I say like a subtitle, this book can change everything. When I started reading this and realizing, oh, these people are like raw with truth. They're like saying exactly what the book of Lamentations, it's five poems, middle of the Bible. It's almost like God is on trial in Lamentations. You know what I mean? Our city got destroyed and you didn't intervene. How dare you say you're a good, loving God? Mm. Um, it's it's almost as much about the absence as it is the presence. And uh, that is the thing that once you see that, then you get set free at some level. Uh, and um, you, you now you're living. Now mm. you're living. You don't shove that stuff down. You don't make – you don't recommend. You don't make lists of what books people can't read. Come on. Right. That's just, that's just, that's first grade. Come on. <laughs> um, Come on, man. The Bible, you don't want to go to a gathering and sing some songs. Fine. Go for a hike. Have a nice meal. Stay home. Be alone. Be with some good friends. Have a beer. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, this, th this is, this is what it means to be human. So, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you just got to put it down. Mm. Totally get it. Totally um, get it. I have so many thoughts, um, not the least of which is I have a flannel, flannel graph version of you in my mind right now. We're in Jesus robes outdoors with the birds chirping, if you don't mind. Um, I'm in my backyard. I am in my backyard. <laughs> either that or it's like the masters where they pump in the birds. I don't know. Which is a blend of uh, birds chirping and police helicopters. <laughs> <laughs> either one's fine. Either one's fine. Um, let me let me see here. When you're um, – there was one part about the – there was one story where you were – well, there was a few stories, I suppose. But you were getting into – it was still in part of the crazy stuff when you were saying the Bible. We get to those parts where the Bible says, huh, um, that we should assume that that was coming out of something else and assume that the writer was making a case for something and that, that we mm -hmm. needed to trust this is going somewhere and that the twists and turns are intentional. Um, and I just wonder if you would say something about that because it's sort of – maybe an overview type comment that would capture a little bit about the thrust of, of the book for people. Oh yeah. That a lot of, for an example, the book of judges is just basically unrelenting violence. The people seem to wake up. They seem to sort of find their bearings and then there's a whole bunch of violence and they end up captured and crushed and, and being oppressed by a neighbor, then they cry out, then they're rescued, they get a new leader, then they make another mess of things, and then it's violence all over again. So you can pick any one of those chapters and be like, what is the point of any of this? Do you know what I mean? This yeah. is a this is just pointless violence. 
unless you read the whole book and you realize, oh, it's like a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. There's like a pattern here. So then you realize whoever edited together the stories in the book of Judges, the point they're making seems to be rooted in the pattern. So, so your friend who's like, why would I ever read the Bible? I mean, look, and they open it up randomly to Judges and go, what does this violence have to say to me? Yeah. Um, well, look at the whole story and ask the question, is there actually some larger pattern is the point? And it seems as though the writer's point is, do you see how pointless all this violence is? Yeah. <laughs> the so, the this, cycle and all that stuff of violence. Where people could, would read this and might think it's sim simple and primitive and barbaric, mm -hmm. when in fact it's actually very subtle and nuanced and clever. So, so think about the number of preachers who have done sermons on judges and didn't mention drones. Like, they bomb us, we bomb them, now we have a new way to bomb them that sort of makes us feel better because soldiers aren't getting killed as much. Um, it's not actually making the world safer to just keep bombing our enemies. Hmm. Um, so, so there is a classic example where it, what is often read as an old, primitive, barbaric story is actually pointed, fresh wisdom and critique about our world right now and actual things our tax dollars are funding. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I say read this book at your peril yeah. because it actually, it may cause you to rethink the the system that you are participating in. Yeah. It, may, it may cause you to ask questions about if you own a company, what's more important, me making even more money or me making the situation even better for my workers. Hmm. Um, and I've seen more people, or you think about, what's the second command in the Bible? Care for the earth. Like, right away in the Bible, human beings' relationship with the soil is central to any coherent spiritual vision of life. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So this idea that, like, environmental issues are somehow owned by a particular political party <laughs> it's yeah. such nonsense well i'm not i'm not one of those tree huggers well well funny for you that you're not a tree hugger because your central text never stops talking about trees and mountains and rivers and you know what i mean <laughs> yeah well and one of the along those lines one of the things for some people is they sidestep the truth being discussed because um, sometimes the truth gets hijacked by different people. And I know in the book, I don't know the line exactly, but it was something to the effect of, hey, guess what? Christians sometimes say, atheists sometimes say things that are true, and Christians sometimes are, are full of shit or something, you know, I think you said. Yes, and, exactly. and I was like, and so sometimes people hear these conversations and they so quickly associate it with two political parties. And it's like, hey, you guys, the truth might not be owned by either of these political agencies, you know? <laughs> so You have to move the ego... Ego loves labels, categories, and divisions. It's not enough that I'm progressive. I need somebody to be regressive and fundamentalist. It's not enough that I'm, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oftentimes, ego needs somebody to not get it so that it bolsters my feeling that I get it. And uh, ego loves 
winners and losers, in, out, success, failure. Hmm. And the great invitation of all spiritual growth is to move beyond that clinging and grasping of ego to just let people be people hmm. and to let the truth and the idea be what it is regardless of where it come from, came from or who said it. You affirm it. Hmm. And uh, that takes you you have to grow and be open to transform to that sort of understanding that takes a while yeah for sure hey what what would you say to somebody that's like trying to make that next step like um you, you know they're nervous about that cuz you say that that could take some time is there stepping away maybe we've addressed this and i've yeah. forgotten already but yeah, yeah, yeah. what kind of advice would you give to that person who's like wanting they feel some hope sparking when they think wait i can make sense of this what would right, you- right 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 oh what a great question um, I always begin with, uh, Jesus says, you and me and I and you. And in the mystic tradition, they talk about the inner Christ wisdom, that all human beings have an inner Christ wisdom. Hmm. So oftentimes when people ask me questions, they'll be like, well, I'm, my brother-in-law says, and, and my boss and my parents and, and my pastor told me, and I'll just say to them, what do you know to be true? And they'll say, X. And I'll be like, exactly. But everybody says that why? It's like, what has been your witness? And they'll say, hmm. uh, X. Yeah. So your question is actually not, is this true or not? You know what's true. Your question is, what happens when I've come to know something and the other people in my tribe haven't come to know it like I've come to know it? Yeah. Your question actually a question about tribal identity, which is interesting because most of the New Testament is the question, who's my family and who's my tribe? Hmm. <laughs> That's you understand the suffering of every person who ever tasted something, and now they can't untaste hmm. a bigger, wider, freer, more vital, more diverse, more expansive view of life in the world. Hmm. It, once you open up, you can't get that thing back in the box. Mm, that's and, so true. So and it true. will probably cause division with the people closest to you, which will be so counterintuitive and painful. And so some people just check out. They just stay where they are because they don't want to disrupt anything. But if you actually follow spirit, they may kill you. Mm. <laughs> that's mm. just that's how the story goes. Mm. They kill him because he says... This system isn't right. It oppresses the poor and makes a few people very rich. And he goes to the cross insisting that this system is not what God intended. Hmm. So, and by the way, you would find this fascinating. Every event I do anywhere in the world, this question always comes up because people weren't taught that if you actually grow and you actually follow you may find yourself pulling away from the tribe that brought you into this world. Hmm. Um, and, it, and this is the question that so many people weren't prepared for this. No one ever told them this. You know what I mean? The enemies, yes. the enemies were the unbelievers. The people who would persecute you were like pagans and heathens. And all of a sudden, their home church 
is like, we're having some questions about your theology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and some of what you're saying here, so it's when I say that the filter that you're you're sharing with people in this book about how you read scripture, it actually helps make sense of things when you're like, oh, wait, this is actually good news for people. And this is a hard teaching. Like, there's hard stuff that comes with this, and yet it really is good news. Like, you're not going to want to walk away from the hard stuff because the good is that good. Um, Absolutely. Whenever yeah. people are like, well, you're making it too easy, I'm like, really? <laughs> no. Love you found loving your neighbor to be too no. easy? What <laughs> yeah. planet are you on? <laughs> yeah, they're not really reading. Hey, Rob, I want to respect your time. Um, one of the things here for those questions I always like to ask people is, you know, um, what are the questions you wish more people were asking right now? Oh, well... I, and I think social media is accentuating this. Have there been periods in history where the things that we are facing, people have faced? Are we the first people to wrestle with violence? Are we the first people to ask questions about economics? Are we the first people to have a widening gap between rich and poor? How about immigration? Like These issues have been questions people have been wrestling with for a long time so just a basic has this happened in our history you know what i mean yeah like what um and then the interior life uh and the amount of things that all of us are carrying around from our family of origin wounds trauma questions desires things we've stuffed the only way forward is to do the interior work um, and so many people have a world of pain and doubt and questions and confusion and betrayal and loss and hope and joy and dreams and unfulfilled expectations. It's all just swirling around inside of them. And there are like professionals, um, from spiritual guides to directors, to therapists, to psychoanalysts, to counselors, to priests to yogis to you know what i mean mm -hmm. professionals who can help you go into your pain and get some help mm. and that's the thing the outer chaos of our world is simply an outer manifestation of inner pain and you go in and that deeply affects what happens when you go out mm. okay yeah Help me, Rob. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Good times, I mean, huh? It, it is, and it goes too fast. Um, like I said, pages of stuff I'd I'd love to pick your brain on. But um, let me just say, as we're wrapping up here, you know, is that I, I just want to say that your writing has, and your work over the last years has uh, it's been a friend to me at times when I couldn't find space to voice my questions, and um, sometimes my questions were the same as yours, and sometimes they were different, but you really modeled the courage to chase truth, even when it made the institution grumble a bit. And even when people began to throw spears and call you names, um, you kept going. And I'm just grateful yeah. for that. And I'm, I'm humbled you. by your ongoing chasing of truth and life. And I, I love that you're trying to share good news with the world. And Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm just proud of you, Rob. I mean, keep up the great work, man. I Thank you. Yeah. You're very kind. That means the world to me. Oh. Well, I hope we get a chance to talk again soon. And uh, in the meantime, people go out read your book and then they'll be ready to have another conversation with you themselves so awesome all right great all right we'll talk soon rob cheers thank you